Welcome to 40 Front Doors, our weekly digital marketing, user experience, and brand strategy podcast. This week, we're taking a look at how direct-to-consumer brands create memorable marketing experiences. The rise of the direct-to-consumer brand is tied to the evolution of the internet. When we think about where the internet has evolved, we look back 20 years, we see Web 1.0. It was largely a static presentation layer for existing monolithic brands. So even if we look at news, you know, you see MSN, uh, the New York Times, and those publications were, you know, posting information. They were posting articles. They were doing what they always did. There wasn't any degree of interactivity nor was there really a dialogue between you and I and that website. So, you know, Web 1.0 can be defined a lot of ways, but really it's the static read web. Now for marketers, that was also probably fairly familiar territory for them. When, again, when you go back 20 years, there doesn't seem to be a lot of dialogue between the consumer and between the brand. It's really flashing advertisements to create brand awareness and then relying on on an in-person strategy. Um, The number of catalogs versus the number of in-store experiences that you would have 20 years ago is far different than what we have today, where the vast majority of the shopping experiences that we're engaging with are happening online. Now, in order for us to get to the point we're at today, we had to go from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0, which was a much more collaborative web. At first, this is defined by the services that power the web. So when you think about Google Docs or when you think about the degree of interactivity that the the myriad web applications that we use to run our lives from banking experiences to shopping experiences, there is a high degree of interactivity. Now, really effective marketing organizations realized that this was a huge opportunity, that you could begin to create a relationship. And just like we spoke about last week, brands are dependent upon the relationship that they create with their audience. It's not just about being memorable or having a a top-tier product. It's about creating a relationship. So with the advent of the functionality that came out of 2.0, you now had tools to create permanence and to create a space within a brand for me, for you. Those initial spaces were account information where we would have a profile on a website. And there were challenges with that as well, because then how many profiles were you managing and how many accounts are you managing? And that's that's still a, that's still a challenge. When you look at something like the ease of shopping that comes along with an experience like Amazon, so much of your information, your preferences, your card on file, it's already stored there. And in so many ways, that's how Amazon wins on the experience before it even begins, before the shopping experience even begins. Because there's so much convenience built into that model. They've already begun to develop a relationship with you that tells you that you matter simply because of the technological investment that they've made into you. Unfortunately, so many of the brands that we recognize that we would see at any shopping center, at any mall that are these marquee retailers, so many of those missed the opportunity to really make that investment into their audience, into you, into me. And they're really paying the price for that now because on one side you have giants like Amazon that made that investment and then on the other side you have these upstart direct-to-consumer brands that have nothing in terms of brand equity but everything in terms of their hunger and their technical posture. 
This is the great equalizer. This is what makes marketing on the internet fun because essentially you're playing a game. It's a David and Goliath scenario. If you have technical fluency, if you have a desire to actually create something meaningful and you have a tolerance for learning, then you can give the biggest brands in the world a run for their money. And that's exactly what you see happening today. You see established retailers struggling to just simply create web experiences that facilitate the most basic commerce functions, the ability to check out in as few steps as possible. The ability to track a package, to return a package. These are things that Amazon's developed such complex technology around, and they've really democratized that in so many ways, making it available for others, if, if nothing else, setting the design patterns and the technical patterns out so that others can really mimic them. You know, so often we look at this and tell our clients, we don't need to reinvent that wheel. We just need to basically do what they're doing from a technical implementation standpoint because they're removing friction. They're removing as many steps as necessary to make us, the customers, as happy as possible. But it's not just the tactical implementation, it's also the mindset. It seems that so many of those brands are still stuck in this 1.0 mindset where it's a very top-down, uh, one-way discussion from the brand to the customer. Here's the product that we want to sell you. Here's the catalog in which you can buy it from. Please buy it. And that is not going to work anymore. That's beyond just generational. 15 years ago, everyone was talking about how do we engage millennials? Now everybody's talking about how do we engage Gen Z? The bigger question is how do you speak to someone that is driven by humanity? How do you create a relationship with a human being? Not how do you force feed them a product that they likely don't need in the first place. And direct-to-consumer brands are getting so good at facilitating that type of conversation because of the confluence of user experience, their copywriting strategies, their SEO strategies, community building strategies, and really thinking about the customer as somebody that they'd likely go to a party with, not just somebody that walks through a door and spend $400 on their brand. And the reason that I know this is because the Fortune 500 comes to us when their marketing platforms don't work. And we're not fixing these esoteric brand problems with them in isolation. We're fixing them in the context of both a 1.0 mindset, archaic technology, and sometimes an insistence to just keep doing things the way that they've been done. And when we are our most effective in helping them, we're really helping them behave more like these direct-to-consumer trendsetters like Warby Parker or Away Travel and or Dollar Shave Club. And when you look at examples like that, you you really, you, coming back to this idea that it's comparable to going to a party with your customer, I can tell you that the Fortune 500 doesn't want to party with its customers. Whereas a direct-to-consumer brand really feels like they're so committed to the product or the service that they're very comfortable creating that degree of intimacy intimacy with their audience and it shows. That's why these direct-to-consumer brands, regardless of the cost of the product, really feel bespoke. They feel tailored. It feels like they've invested both in their product design and in their communication and their website in, in all of the things that create a tangible brand. Like it's tailored for me. And therefore, the product feels tailored, whereas some of the most iconic and prestigious brands feel mass-produced, 
because their marketing is mass produced. There's no way to break those two things apart. If your marketing is mass produced, your product feels mass produced and you lose out on so many of the, you know, the the opportunities that great marketing provides, the idea of scarcity or the idea of exclusivity. And although the larger enterprise brands would like you to have those feelings associated with their brand, they're not doing anything to actually engineer that. It's a huge missed opportunity. Opportunity. Warby Parker, Away Travel, and Dollar Shave Club have become household names because of their direct-to-consumer marketing strategies. All three of them have an emphasis on content and storytelling. When you think about Away or Dollar Shave Club and even Warby Parker, it's almost like their initial investments were in editorial content. They were so focused on understanding what would actually make their audience excited about eyewear or about luggage or about something as commoditized as a razor. And in doing so, they really set a blueprint of these seven steps that we can all take into our marketing programs, that we can all take and fold into our brand strategy and user experience strategies to create experiences the way that they have. And the first is this emphasis on editorial content and storytelling. Before anything else, these brands started communicating the value of what their products enabled, not just the value of the product, making it about the brand, but making it about you and me. And that storytelling gave way to community, building a real community, which is not an easy task because you actually have to understand the people in your community, not just the personas. So if you look at the difference between Away Travel and Samsonite, at almost every level, you get a very clear example of this. Even from their URL, Away Travel, it's not Away Luggage, it's Away Travel. They want you to think of them as a travel brand, not a luggage brand. Now, Samsonite is ubiquitous. Everybody knows what Samsonite is. It's a, it's a, premier luggage brand. But when you go to that website, and when you go to the Away Travel website, you're faced with two completely different experiences. And there's no better example of why some of these iconic brands struggle online. If you conduct a Google search and you're looking for Samsonite luggage, you're likely going to be placed right on their product listing page, which is about as exciting as it sounds. The product listing page is a catalog. It's a three by however many row grid of just products. And I'm looking at it right now. And, you know, it, it has all of the components you would expect. A picture of the luggage, color options, maybe a promo, a sale that they're running, some stars that indicate customer ratings. And then on the left, we see that we can filter size and weight. For some reason, we can choose our luggage by gender, color, collection, price. I didn't realize that we would be shopping for luggage by gender, but Samsonite wants us to do that. So that's interesting. From away travel, we see a traveler. That that's the first thing that we see. We see we see this young woman who looks like she's arrived at this amazing destination in Greece and she's really happy that she's there. And with her is this conveyance this piece of luggage that's made this trip possible. And from there, it's nothing more than exploration. It talks about packing more in and even the vernacular, pack more in. Are we talking about packing more into the day, into the agenda? Or are we 
talking about the suitcase. They're doing this because they have a clear understanding of what people are looking for. They're looking for that destination right down to where that person is likely to travel. Samsonite has no idea where you're going, and therefore it has very little idea of where it's going. So Away has created a travel experience where Samsonite has created a catalog. And Samsonite has too many resources to make these kinds of mistakes. And we, again, because we work with organizations at this scale, we see the difference. We see that big companies tend to feel that this type of research isn't necessary or worth it. Whereas you can see that Away has made that investment and it's paying off. And there are a lot of reasons why this is the case. I mean, Smaller, hungrier brands tend to dig in and they are eating, drinking, and like I said before, partying with their audience. Now, I don't know if that's the reality of it, but it certainly feels like they know their audience well enough that they'd be invited to be part of that same community. Now, in this one example, we also see, just in this comparison between Samsonite and Away Travel, that there's a much different approach in terms of exclusivity. The Away product feels exclusive. The price points are nearly identical. You can spend much, much more on the Samsonite website, and you can certainly spend quite a bit of money on the Away travel website, but there's exclusivity engineered into it, and that makes the product that much more desirable. There's loss aversion that's being built into it that, you know, if you don't have this luggage, maybe you're not going to have the same enjoyable experience that you would with this luggage. And all of these bespoke and tailoring functions build in that idea of scarcity, where again, the Samsonite website is like a warehouse. And although that warehouse approach works for Amazon, because I might want to buy a microphone for a podcast, or I might want to buy, you know, a 10 pack of dental floor. I'm not really looking for an experience in the same way. I'm looking for a solution to a problem. And in those ways, they know their audience quite well. So it, all of this comes down to understanding the audience and then creating the content and the experience you need to draw that audience in and then to convert that audience into a customer. And the other thing that they do well, and you know, another example would be Allbirds, a footwear brand versus Nike, is just the amount of choices. When you go to Nike and look for a sneaker, it is completely overwhelming. And, and you have to know exactly what you're looking for. And any attempt that they're making to facilitate that is failing. And it's failing horribly because there are hundreds, if not thousands of colorways and options that create so many choices that it's difficult, if not impossible, for a consumer to feel like they've made the right choice versus all birds, where there's something like seven choices. And again, it it immediately calms the audience. It brings those it brings those ideas of exclusivity back into focus. It brings that idea that this brand has invested the time and the energy to tell me what I need. And most of the time, we are looking for that direction from a relationship with a brand. You're supposed to be taking the money that we're paying you, investing it into research and development and innovation and understanding what we need, right? You're the you're the footwear expert. I don't know how to make a shoe. So I assume that you do. And I also assume that there's probably not a need for 6,000 shoes. Now, our, you know, there's an argument to be made for Nike that they're selling soccer cleats and they're selling 
running shoes and cycling shoes and all of these different varieties. But that's not where the confusion is coming from. The confusion is coming from comparable lifestyle brands, casual athletic brands, the the type of clothes and footwear that we would wear to the gym, out in our everyday lives. These are the places where that kind of confusion shouldn't happen. And Allbirds is getting it right versus Nike, who's not. And just to recap that difference between the direct-to-consumer brands that are getting it right and the larger brands that are struggling right now, it's a focus on storytelling and content, building community, and doing the research that helps you create a relationship with your audience. This is the biggest opportunity for any marketer, whether it's an enterprise-scale B2C or whether it's a startup D2C. Develop that type of relationship, develop that type of content. They're both going to require research and understanding your audience. Once you have that information in hand, you can pivot and you can focus on that convergence of effective inbound traffic from valuable content, from the type of editorial content content that we've been talking about and supporting that with really effective conversion strategies like great user experiences and effective funnels. So let's take a minute to talk about each of these. Great copywriting is now possible because you understand your audience this well. Because you understand what they're trying to accomplish, you can write to those means. You can you can just tell people how your product or your service is going to help them achieve that goal. That's the basis for creating content that's both going to stand out in a search result and also facilitate conversion once they arrive at that website. And what you do with that audience, what you do with that customer when they arrive at the website is equally important. When we think about all of the steps that led to the effective content, it was based in research. So we spent time thinking through those needs so that we could tell a story, create a sense of belonging and community because we were addressing the the, the very real needs needs of, of the customer, not just telling them about all of the product features. Well, the same type of care and nurturing has to go into product selection so that we don't have a catalog of 6,000 items, but we have a catalog of a meaningful number of items. There is a caveat to this. B2B marketing and B2B experience does play by a slightly different set of rules. Now, it's not a parallel set of rules because all of the things that we've been talking about in terms of understanding the customer are equally, if not more important, but there is one aspect that is unique. There are, there are catalogs that have have 6 million SKUs and all of those items have a very real purpose for that potential customer. And there are many types of customers within any singular B2B shopping experience. So the rules in terms of conversion and user experience are a little bit more complicated because you have to have more sophisticated commerce tools in hand to be able to reduce the complexity. But understanding the audience is just as important because once they're on the other side of that of that domain when they're still do when they're still doing their research and conducting Google searches or surveying the marketplace your content really needs to stand out there are choices at every level of of commerce and b2b is no exception but where direct to consumer and B2B sync back up is regarding the development of effective funnels, the experiences that both build trust and lower risk in the mind of the consumer at every step of these digital interactions. The tools that make that possible are available to all of us. Shopify 
has the same degree of flexibility as some of the most sophisticated content and commerce platforms in the world. I've worked with all of them. If you step away from the unique needs of a large-scale organization and the governance that's required to operate a, a huge website, you'll see that the functionality is almost identical. Of course, there are more marketing automations and sophisticated plugins and sophisticated integrations that power business intelligence platforms and other marketing platforms, but it really comes down to the singular commerce functions at this point. What creates an effective user experience? And again, we see more often than not, the bigger the brand, the harder they fall. They just seem to respond to that complexity by buying more engineering, by buying more technology, not by investing in really understanding what that customer needs and then investing in the technology that will simply push all obstacles out of the way to facilitate that transaction. That's something that anyone listening can take advantage of because if platforms like Webflow and Shopify provide that type of functionality, it can only scale up from there. And that's something we can all be excited about because that means we all have access to some of the most sophisticated content and commerce tools in the world. Our digital development stack rarely requires more than four to five critical planning, design, and development tools. These are the same tools that we use when we're helping a 10-person startup or a, a, a commerce giant with 175,000 employees. Miro, Jira, Figma, Webflow. With those four tools in hand, you can plan, design, and build a website of almost any complexity. That's on the digital development side. So every marketing department, whether it's within a, a large-scale B2B or whether it's in a three-person startup, should be looking at those tools, Miro, Jira, Figma, and Webflow. Now, there might be enterprise requirements or existing technology platforms that are going to replace or, or scale beyond Webflow. But in those environments, we actually use Webflow as an incredibly advanced prototyping platform, allowing us to circumvent some of the much more complex and archaic large-scale development platforms. Everything underneath enterprise scale can be built upon Webflow for some of the most sophisticated content and common platforms out there. So far, we've talked about how we can create great marketing experiences by understanding our audience and the tools that we can use to affect change and create experiences for those audiences. But what about measurement? What about ongoing marketing and automation? Well, in those ways, we're also biased towards a really simple stack. And that includes HubSpot, Google Analytics, SEMrush, and Microsoft Clarity. With those four tools, we can measure site performance, we can understand unique journeys, we can understand how people are interacting with a given web property, and we can also engineer marketing automations that begin to develop a relationship with a brand. There are more tools out there, and there are arguably more sophisticated tools out there there, but I've never seen technology alone be the solution.
My perspective is shaped by the fact that my background includes both digital and physical product development. I'm a prototyper. I like creating small experiments and understanding the impact they have. I think it's a lesson that we can all benefit from, especially when I make that comparison back up to the enterprise. There's this really superficial desire to be prototype driven or to be experimental. But in reality, those buyers tend to look for technology to create that solution. And the technology is never going to be the solution. It's like watching a master carpenter. You know, you might have the most sophisticated tools that you could buy at Home Depot and you've got the perfect bench and the tool belt and every single saw that you could imagine. And then you see a master carpenter with nothing more than a handsaw and a ruler create something really beautiful. And the reason is because they fundamentally know the tools better than you do. And that's why the simplicity of the technology stack is actually an advantage. The fewer tools that you have, the more focused you are going to be on understanding how to leverage those and how to actually solve the problem at hand. That's how we develop our craft. We've covered a lot of ground today, but it comes down to really four simple points. One, understand the audience. Research is going to open that door for you. Two, develop funnels that leverage technology to remove obstacles. Three, measure the effectiveness of your digital marketing using the simplest tool set until you've absolutely exhausted its abilities. It just makes it easier to manage the complexity of all of the data. And then four, continue. Just continue. SEO and experience improvements don't happen overnight. We often tell our clients it's a six to nine month time frame to really see a stabilization of performance and to see the content that you're developing really take root. SEO and user experience are long-term investments that pay for themselves. And like all great compounding investments, they take time and they take patience to really pay off. Thanks for spending time with me this week. Remember, I'm not here to tell you what to do, just how to do it. I want to pull back the curtain on what the best, most effective marketing strategies are and exactly what you'll need to do to implement them. Join me next week when I talk about what it takes to develop a world-class user experience and digital marketing team. That's going to cover understanding key roles and how to do more with less. And with talk of recession on the horizon, this applies to everyone. Don't forget to subscribe and join us next week for another episode of 40 Front Doors. Take care.